0: third day, as the king had appointed, saying, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people roughly, and forsook the old men's counsel that they gave him, and spake to them after the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, and I will add to your yoke. My father also chastised you with whips, and I will chastise you with scorpion. Wherefore, the king hearkened not unto the people, for the cause was from the Lord, that he might perform his saying, which the Lord spake by Ahijah, the Shilonite, unto Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So when all Israel saw that the king hearkened not unto them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion have we in David? Neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, Now see to thine own house, David. So Israel departed unto their tents. But as for the children of Israel, which dwelt in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Then King Rehoboam sent a Doram who was over the tribute, and all Israel stoned him with stones that he died. Therefore King Rehoboam made speed to get him up to his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day. And it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam was come again, that they sent and called him unto the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. 1 Kings chapter 11 and chapter 12 gives us the historical background for how the nation of Israel went from a united kingdom to a divided kingdom. The nation had been a monarchy for 40 years under the reign of Saul and then 40 years under the reign of David and then 40 years under the reign of Solomon. And when Solomon dies, there would be a political division amongst the tribes that would rend the kingdom in two. And from henceforth, you'll read about a northern kingdom, that's Israel. You'll read about a southern kingdom, that's Judah. And it was really a sad day in Israel's history as the reign of Solomon came to an end. A king who had been devoted to God, a king who had built a magnificent temple, a king who was known for thousands of sacrifices was also a king that married multiple wives and they turned his heart away from God. And God came to Solomon toward the end of his life and told him that I'm going to rend the kingdom in two and instead of your son reigning in your stead, I'm going to give most of the kingdom to a servant. Solomon spent the last years of his life knowing that his son would one day become the king, but he would not be able to hold on to the kingdom, and he knew that the nation would divide and that most would follow a servant. In fact, one of Solomon's last acts before he died was to try to kill that servant, and God wouldn't let him. It's a sad end to what had been a glorious beginning. Solomon dies in Rehoboam, his son, is anointed as the next king of Israel. The entire record of his life is found in 1 Kings chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14, a couple of the parallel chapters in Chronicles, and you will look long and hard before you find anything positive about Rehoboam. Usually you can find something good to say about even the worst of men. Well, the scripture paints a portrait of a young man who's immature, he's immature, He's brash, he's reckless, and and he reigns for 17 years. He dies at the age of 58. He goes down in history as one of the worst kings of Judah. His mother is from Ammon. That's one of the heathen wives that Solomon had married and brought idolatry into the home. And she probably had more influence on him than Solomon did because he turned out more like his mother than he did his father. And when Rehoboam was inaugurated as the king, there was a delegation of citizens that came to him with a request. And the request is for lower taxes. Solomon evidently had, had levied heavy taxes, oppressive taxes to fund his building programs. It had become oppressive as what it had happened. And, and so the delegation came to Rehoboam and they said, listen, you get ready to be the king and if you will treat us kindly, if you'll, if you'll help us out a little bit economically, we'll be gladly to serve you as our king. Rehoboam says, give me three days and let me take counsel and think about it and I'll give you my answer in three days. So Rehoboam goes to a group of older men, counselors, and they say it's a reasonable request. Well, you um, you ought to lower the taxes. You ought to help your people out. You ought to be a benevolent leader and your people will gladly follow you. And then he goes to a group of young men, young counselors, and they take the more socialist approach that you know, the wealthy need to pay their share and spread the wealth around and free health care and free college and free daycare and free iPhones, and, and it's in the Hebrew, you'll just have to look for it there. And by the way, it's always dangerous for a country to have young men who have no wisdom, no experience, never build anything, never hold a job to running the country. It's just I just thought I would say that. But real Rehoboam, real we, we know that you're young and we know that this is a massive undertaking. But if you'll pass some tax reforms and if you will make it possible for your people to make a decent living and, and to provide for their families, then we will back it up. And Rehoboam said, you just thought that it was hard. I'm going to be twice as hard as my father. I'm not going to lower your taxes. I'm going to raise your taxes. I'm the king. I have all power. I'm going to rule with an iron fist. I'm going to make your lives more difficult. I'm going to prove to be as oppressive as I am, immature. And with that, the nation splits in two. And 10 tribes get together and they make a decision. And the decision is that Rehoboam is too immature to be our king. So we're going to find another king. We're not going to be treated like this. We believe that we deserve better and and we're going to start our own thing. We're going to find our own king who will do what we want him to do. And so we're going to go off. We're going to start our own nation. We're going to have our own man. We're going to have our own laws. We're going to be our own thing is what we're going to do. And wouldn't you know that standing in the midst of them was the very man that would David choose to be their king, a man named Jeroboam. Now don't get them confused, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Now who is Jeroboam? Well, back up, if you would, to chapter 11 and look at verse 28 he's introduced to us here. Chapter 11, verse 28, it came to pass at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him in the way. I'm sorry, verse 28, the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor, and Solomon, seeing the young man that he was industrious, he made him ruler over all the charge of the house of Joseph when Solomon was living, he had a widow woman that was working for him as a servant. She had a son. That young man grows up in the palace and and the verse says that he has some admirable qualities about him. He's a man of valor, so he's a warrior type. He's industrious, so he's not lazy. He shows some leadership skills. Solomon puts him over the the, the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, the house of Joseph. And and so so there's some admirable qualities about him. And so the the tribes of Israel make a choice. And here's their choice. We choose not to follow Rehoboam as our king. We choose another man to be over us. We, we choose a man who will not be so heavy-handed, a man who will not be so burdensome in taxes. And while it looks like it could have been a good choice, I wonder if it was the best choice. Because the king that they chose will immediately lead them into idolatry and the nation will never recover from the damage that this king is going to do to them. Before the Assyrians roll through the land in 722 BC, they'll have 20 kings and none of them will be good. And the seeds of their captivity were sown when they said, we choose Jeroboam to be our king. Now, please understand, I know that Rehoboam was not a great man. And by the way, I know that God had already decreed that the nation was going to be divided. In fact, God had already singled out Jeroboam. I understand that. I also know that there have been times when God determined to do something and people prayed and sought for mercy and God turned his mind and repented of what he's going to do. And God, I do know that God can determine to show wrath but then showed mercy. I understand that. I also know that you are responsible for the decisions that you make, for the choices that you make, and the people have a choice. Neither choice seems to be a good choice, but is Jeroboam the best choice? Yep. I'm not saying Rehoboam's a good man. He's got plenty of negatives. He's immature. Who wants that? But they chose Jeroboam. I think that sometimes we, um, we ask the wrong question. Oftentimes you preach, I, I preached a few weeks ago on social drinking in our church. Yes. And, and, and sometimes people ask the question, well, preacher, what is wrong with that? Can, can you give me a verse? A, I, need, I need a chapter and verse. Wrong question. How about what is right with that? Instead of, is it a sin, a black and white sin, is it right for my life? Is it for me is it God's will or are you trying to get by with as much as you possibly can or are you trying to find God's will for your life and when you are making a life altering decision why wouldn't you want to know what is God's will, what is the best choice because when you make a decision you're also agreeing to accept the good or the bad that comes with that. I have weighed the pros, I have weighed the cons, I'm hoping for the pros, but I will accept the cons because of the decision that I make. And maybe this morning somebody is here and you're facing a big decision somewhere down the road and maybe you're saying that, that there's a lot of negatives and, and it could turn south real quick, but I think that I can make it out. I, I, I think that I can figure out a way and, and hopefully some of the negatives don't materialize and if they do, I can always pray as a last resort and maybe God will get me out of the jam. And people have a way of putting on blinders when they've already made up their mind of what they want to do. Because I have to have peace about this even if I have to manufacture some peace. Peace. And they looked at Rehoboam and the flaws are obvious, but so are Jeroboam's. There's some good things said about Jeroboam from a political standpoint, but not one good spiritual quality about him. But if I ask the right people and if I keep talking about it, I will eventually persuade myself against myself. And isn't it amazing some of the decisions that even God's people make? And so maybe on this Monday afternoon, maybe there is somebody here in this service and you're getting ready to make a decision about a mate. That's a big decision. Oh, Brother Dorsey said it. You, you better get that one right. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're getting ready to make a decision about a ministry. Maybe, maybe it's a decision about some material purchase. So some, some, some big Decision, and, 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 and if you can make it work and if all the stars are aligned and if you just put twice as much effort into it and if, and if and if and if and if and you've talked yourself into it and you've persuaded yourself that you can make it work and here's all the reasons why I think that this is what I want to do but is your choice the best That's right. choice? That's what I want to preach on this morning, this afternoon. I, I'm, I'm going quick, I'm going quick. How to make the best choice? Write this down. Here's the first thing. Here's the first question I ask you. Is your choice the product of much prayer? Now, I hope that you don't think that I'm making a bigger deal out of this than what it is, but don't miss what is missing in the narrative. The people talk to Jeroboam. The people talk to Rehoboam. Rehoboam talks to the people. They talk to one another, but nobody talks to God. That's an amazing thing to me. If you look in chapter 12, look look if you would, in verse number 15, wherefore the king hearkened not unto the people. Now here's what you ought to read next. Let's have a prayer meeting. Let's have all the men come by on Friday night and let's pray about this. let's, let's, Let's just spend a night in prayer. And before we make a decision that's going to impact our families and our children and our worship, let's just see if God would speak to us. And maybe, maybe you don't think it's a big deal that they didn't pray about it, but maybe you don't think it's a big deal when you don't pray about the decisions you have to make. Oh, preacher, my wife and I, we, we've talked about it, and, and I talked to a couple of the lost men on the job, and they told me what they think, and, and, and we're pretty sure that it's the right thing, so we don't really need to pray. Because we've done our research and we've asked a lot of questions and I, I've done my due diligence. I, I'm not walking into this blindly and I, I, just, I just know, I just know that he's the right man for me because he's so sweet and, and he's so kind to me and, and, and how could I love her so much if she wasn't the one for me? Hey, you better pray about that. I, I, just, I just know. I just know that this is what I want to do. But have you forgotten, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. Have you forgotten, call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. I say, sir, that before you take that job that pays well and moves you out to a town where there is no good church to put your family in, please pray about that. I say, ma'am, before you decide that you've got to go back to work and put your kids in daycare because you can't be a mama and pay the bills at the same time, please pray about that. I say, preacher, before you succumb to that discouragement that is suffocating and you want to throw in the towel at that church that God called you to and find greener pastures, please pray about that. Sarah, before you get offended at something your preacher said and pull your family out of a church where God is moving and put them in some watered down, No standards, weak doctrine, chariots that'll soothe your feelings. Would you please pray about that? And young lady, before you get so emotionally involved with that young man that your parents say is not the one and he's a sweet-talking, good-looking heathen, please pray about that. Is your choice the product of much prayer? There is no indication that they prayed. Where is there a priest to go into the holy place for us? Where is the high priest to bring the Urim and the Thummim? Where, where, where is, a, where, 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 why don't we get around the temple and see if God will speak to us? It's not a light thing. We, we, we need to hear from God. My family's gonna be affected with this. My children have to grow up under this man. Is this the best choice? Don't assume it is God's will without asking him. Why, why, would you, why would you value the counsel of men more than you would value the counsel of God? If you would ask your earthly father about it, why wouldn't you ask your heavenly father about it? Do you pray? And may I add, do you pray open-mindedly? are you asking for His will or for His validation. Oh Lord, I, hey, I, 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 I've got it all figured out. Lord, I just need You to put Your rubber stamp on this. Huh? And don't ask me to pray for you if you're not going to accept the answer. That's right. Have you prayed? you say, preacher. What would God have said if they'd have prayed? I get this. If they would have prayed, do you know what would have happened? I have no idea. Here's the point. Because they didn't ask. Maybe God would have said, go back to Rehoboam, I'll turn his heart. Maybe God would have said, you stick with him and I'll turn things around. Who knows? knows? Maybe God would have said, I want you to stay under him, but I'm going to do great things. But here's the point, you don't know. And you don't know what God would say to you. You don't know what wisdom, you don't know what direction, you don't know how God would turn it around if you don't ask. If your family's life depends on this decision, you cannot make it without prayer. Ere you left your room this morning, did you think to pray? In the name of Christ our Savior, did you sue for loving favor as a shield today? Because oh, how prayer rests the weary. Prayer will change the night to day. So when life seems dark and dreary, don't forget to pray. If you would make the best choice, young man, it must be the product of much prayer. i give you the second thing, I hurry. Is your choice the product of much prayer? Secondly, will your, cho- will your choice open the door for more of the world? But do look at verse 20. And it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam was come again. Well, I wonder where he's come again from. Well, back up to chapter 11. Chapter 11, look at verse number 40. Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam, and Jeroboam rose and fled unto Egypt, unto Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Jeroboam is angry with Solomon somehow. Solomon has put an arrest warrant out for him. Jeroboam has fled to Egypt. he's been there for nine years. So in chapter twelve and verse number two, it came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was yet in Egypt, heard of it, for he was fled from the presence of King Solomon, and Jeroboam dwelt. In Egypt, when Solomon passes away, Jeroboam, that usurper, sees his opportunity to come back into the land. And so when the Bible says he has come again, he has come again from Egypt. I don't have to tell you that Egypt is a type of the world. When God brought his children out of Egypt across the Red Sea, he tells them, don't go back. In fact, kings. Don't even go back to Egypt and get your horses. I don't want you back in Egypt. But Jeroboam has been there for nine years and you can get a lot of Egypt in your heart in nine years. And I'm glad that he is out of Egypt. I don't think that Egypt is out of him. And I wonder if anybody, anybody raised a question. I wonder if any of the men of Israel said, does anybody know if Jeroboam still believes like they believe in Egypt? I wonder, does Jeroboam still worship the gods that they worship in Egypt? Does anybody know what kind of influence Egypt still has on him? You know, if you are trying to have a godly home where you're trying to raise children for God and where they'll walk in truth all of their life, you have a battle on your hands and you're going to have enough trouble with the flesh and with the devil and with enemies and church members and all the rest of it, then why would you ever crack open the door for the influence of the world into your home? The devil is looking for a way to get in. He is looking to penetrate that hedge of protection. And when you crack the door open just a little bit and he sticks his foot in, that is all that he needs to begin influencing your children and the alarm bells ought to be going off and you ought to see the danger and you ought to know that this thing is not headed well. 20 years ago, 20 years ago, I I went into the home of one of our church members and and I was there in and out. I had to pick something up. I can't remember what it was and and, and I I just had to knock on the door. He knew I was coming. Went in, picked something up and then in a minute I was out and and 20 years ago, I was a naive pastor. I thought that everybody was separated and loved God and all that and all that. And I've, I've learned since then. And I walked in, I walked in, good home, good home, good home, good home. I walked in, and they had television going on, and they were playing the country music television channel, CMT. It was just country music, 24 hours a day. And I was, it, it just struck me as, as odd. Why, why would this Christian family be having country music playing? It, am, am, I okay? am I okay? Did you know 20 years later that all of the kids are grown and gone and there's not one of them in church today? Say, it was, the, say it was the country music, have no idea. But I don't think the country music helped any. Yeah. Don't, don't die on me, all right? Don't die on me. Don't die on me, all right? Yeah, me. How, could you, how could you possibly think that playing that honky talk in your home, Amen. having gyrating dancing girls on the screen, talking about drinking and fornicating and, and, and cheating on your wife, how could you possibly not think that that's not gonna have an impact on your children? Shouldn't some bells be going off? Shouldn't some red lights be flashing? Shouldn't somebody say, hey, this is not going to end well? You're opening up the door. That old flame that you found on Facebook, you're prying open the door for more of the world. That friend from school that has nothing in common with Christianity, you're prying open the door for more of the world. Those movies that you go to, can I say that? That, 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 that music that you listen to, that television that plays fornication, promotes every sin, of the, you're opening up the doors what you're doing. I tell you, and by the way, you're against country music unless it's Christmas time. Now it's time to hear Vince Gill, Carrie Underwood, whatever it might be. Why, why would you ever take the chance of your daughter and your son developing a taste for that? Why would you bring that into your home? Why would you take a chance that it corrupts your children? Why would you allow that influence into your heart? Why would you choose the worldly? Is the choice that you're making, Pry and open the door just a little bit more of the world. I said this yesterday in our church and, and you know when you're in your church you can say things, not somebody else's church but I'm gonna say it anyway. One of the biggest decisions that a family has to make is how and where we will educate our children. Now I'm not your pastor and y'all, you, them, them ain't my kids, all right? But you better think long and hard before you send your kids down to that public school where they get that Egyptian-based education, and you know they're going to get more indoctrination than they are education. They're going to learn more about the ways of the world than they are the ways of God. They're going to meet some friend that's going to introduce them to a world that they never knew existed. You are prying open the door for the world to come in. In fact, it may surprise you that not every kid in a Christian school is a Christian kid. We've watched it all over the country, have we not? That the devil has planted a lot of teenage Trojan horses in our Christian schools planted a lot of teenage Trojan horses in our Baptist youth groups. Listen, my kids are almost up and gone. I got a 15 year old. I've got three kids, two are good. I got one that's coming up and we're we're working on what we're doing, all right? But I'm gonna tell you something. When we was raising our kid, I'm gonna tell you, you you call us isolationists, you can say we're snobs, it really does not matter. But my kid and your kid are not gonna be friendly kids together if I'm convinced that your kid is not a good influence on my kid. That's just what it is going to be. That is how the cookie crumbles, and that's just it. And, and since I'm here, since I'm here, I am tired. I'm tired. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of sending our brightest and best off to Bible colleges and them coming back wanting to sing contemporary Christian music in our churches. I'm just just a little bit tired of sending our young men off to Bible college and having them come back so educated they don't believe the King James Bible anymore. Just a little bit tired of sending them off to train for the ministry and they come back as this new IFB, modern, contemporary, no better than the old timers, want to start some pseudo-Baptist thing. I'm I'm just tired of that, I'm just not for that anymore. Many a young man, many a young man has made a choice that pride opened the door. Many a young person has made a choice they thought was right, but it pride opened the door. Many a family has moved to a new church and it pride opened the door. And many a teenager has fallen in love and all it did is it pride opened the door. And somebody had better ask are we letting the world into our home? Are we allowing the world to have a say in our future? Is is this the right choice? Is this the best choice? Jeroboam Jeroboam was more like Egypt than he is Israel. You cannot immerse yourself in nine years in Egypt without a strong spiritual influence. It did not affect you. And you could tell it by how he talked. And you could tell it by the way he dressed. And And you could tell it by the friends that he hung around with. And they said, We know he's been in Egypt. I'm sure he has Egypt in his heart, but we choose the worldly, making the best choice. Is your choice the product of much prayer? Is your choice to and open the door for more of the world to come in? Let me give you a third thing, I hurry. Does your choice presume a loyalty that is not there? Look at chapter 12, verse 26. Jeroboam said in his heart, now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah. They shall kill me, go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, it not, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy God's old Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Sat one in Bethel and the other put in Dan and this thing became a sin for the people who went to worship before the one even under Dan. It creates a problem out of thin air and then creates a solution and the problem is how are these people going to worship? If the ten tribes go to Jerusalem, that's in the southern kingdom. If they go there, I'm afraid that God's going to get their hold of their hearts. It's going to turn their hearts away from me. It jeopardizes my power. And I don't know how long it was, but it wasn't long before Jeroboam was introducing a new way of of worship. By the way, God had already decided the place, Jerusalem. Well, let's have a new place, Dan, Bethel. God had already decided the priesthood, Levites. Well, let's get us some new preachers. They don't have to be qualified like that. In fact, God had already chosen certain periods of time. Did you know there were three annual feasts where all of Israel came to Jerusalem to worship? First month, seventh month, first month, third month, seventh month. But if you look in verse number 31, he made a house of high places, made priests of the lowest of the people which were not of the sons of Levi, and Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month. Let's just make one up. Everything new is new. Nothing old is retained. It is a worship of some sort, but it sure doesn't look like the worship that they've been doing. And come to find out, Jeroboam did have a lot of the world in his heart. And it comes out in his worship. Now watch this. I wonder if the men of Israel knew that this came with the package. They weren't looking for a king to give them new gods. They weren't looking for a king to build us temples and down. No, we want lower taxes is what we want. And if they had known what was in his heart, then perhaps they would have said, no, you can't be our king. But they presumed a loyalty to God that didn't exist. It's not a word you hear a lot about. It's loyalty. Loyalty is a good word. Every church needs men and women and boys and girls who are loyal. You ought to be loyal to your church. Your church ought to know I'm not leaving. I'm, I'm not belling out on this. Your preacher ought to know that you are loyal. I'm not just going to switch churches because it's convenient. I'm not going to be part of the crowd that gives me a preacher every two years because he steps on my toes. No, preacher, I've got your back. When things get rough and when everybody's criticizing you, whatever it might be, I want you to know I'm standing there with you. Your wife ought to know that. Your husband ought to know that. Your church ought to know that they can depend upon you. But I want to tell you something, young man. Before you marry that young lady, do not assume a spirituality that is not there. Is she on the same page as the way that you were brought up? Does she have the same convictions? Does she have the same heart for God that you have? Because why would you ever date somebody without asking spiritual questions? Is she saved? Is she spiritual? So, well, we've never talked about that. Then talk about it. Ask the question. Make it an issue. Why not? This is a life-altering decision. They presumed a loyalty that was not there. I told my church yesterday morning, I preached this yesterday morning, I said, listen, there will come a time when my time will be up. I will be old and feeble or senile or whatever it might be and you will finally decide that you want to get a true pastor in your church. When you do, don't just assume he believes the King James Bible. Ask him. Don't just assume that he has standards. Don't just assume that he's old-time fundamentalist. Don't just assume. No, no, ask him, how is your prayer life? How is your worship life? What do you think about contemporary Christian media? Ask. Don't presume a loyalty that is not there. They presume that he's loyal to God. We're making the best choice. I'm done. I'll give you a fourth question. Is your choice the product of much prayer? And does your choice pry open the door for more of the world? Are you presuming a loyalty that is not there? And does your choice pick the easy over the best? You know why they chose Jeroboam over Rehoboam? It'd be easier. Lower taxes. Nobody wants it hard. I, I don't want to pay taxes either. But sometimes easier is not better. The criteria was simply, we believe it will be easier under Gerald Balm than real Balm. And we choose the easiest path. And God could wave a magic wand and God can make all of our lives easy. But it wouldn't necessarily be better because God takes the hard things of life and he grows us. And he strengthens us. And I asked for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn to obey. And I asked for health to do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness. I might feel my need for God. I don't know what the future would have held for Israel under Rehoboam. I don't know how the story would have gone, but they said our choice is Jeroboam. We don't need to pray about it. We've already made up our mind. We're not concerned that he spent nine years in Egypt and a lot of that influence is still in him. We don't even know for sure what kind of worship that he follows. We presume that we'll still be able to go to the temple. But this will be easier. The choice makes sense. It's more logical. I've put it down on pen and paper. And it may not be the best choice, but I choose Jeroboam. There's a wealthy Christian gentleman in London. He was getting up in years and wanted to give each of his servants A gift. She called all the servants together and she played for my sister. He said, I "I want to give you a gift. I have two choices. I'll let you choose. He said, I have a 20-pound note, British pound, and I have an old Bible. I'll let you decide which one you want. So he asked the butler, he said, which would you like? And the butler said, well, I'd take the Bible, but I can't read. So I guess I'll just take the 20-pound note. So I gave him the 20 pound note, he asked the gardener and the gardener said, well, my wife is so ill and I need to buy her medicine. I think the 20 pound note would help me more. He goes down the line to the chauffeur. And the chauffeur says, I've had my eye on a fine new hat. That'll do the trick. I think I'll take the 20 pound note. Comes to the cook. The cook says, I've never owned a brand new store-bought dress. That'll be the trick. I can do it with that. I'll take the 20-pound note. One by one, every servant said, if you don't mind, I'll take the money over the Bible. The old gentleman was disappointed. He turns to the errand boy. He said, son and boy, what would you have? Would you have the 20-pound note or would you have the old Bible? The errand boy looked at it and he said, I've never owned a 20-pound note in my life. I'd have often dreamed of what I'd do if I ever held that much money in my hand at one time. But I remember my mama every morning reading that Bible. And I don't know much about it, but I know that somehow that Bible gave a boy the best mama that a boy could ever ask Sir, if you don't mind, I'll I'll take the Bible. The old gentleman handed the Bible to the errand boy when he did, a gold coin fell out to the floor. The errand boy picked it up and said, Sir, you forgot this. He said, Oh, no, son. Whatever's in that Bible belongs to you. They began to leaf through that Bible. There was a 20-pound note and a 10-pound note and a silver coin and more money why he had hid treasures all over that Bible. And this afternoon, there is no telling what hidden treasures God has already prepared for your life. If you would say, I'm not looking for the easy. I don't want the worldly. But I sure want God's will. I want to make the best choice best choice. Heavenly Father, would you bless your word.